This is Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Tuesday, February 8th, and today will be better than yesterday. Producing today from Bitter Boulevard in Nebraska, Sarah Abbott. Sarah, how you doing? I'm doing much better than I was last week. Um, I'm entering a new stage of grief, which is just like the acceptance. For people who are listening, maybe that don't know the context, it's over Tom Brady's retirement. Yes. So not an actual death, but just a death of my hope, <laughs> my joy, my spirit. Oh boy, I hope you can get through it. I'm Buster, only working from my home in New York, and Taylor Schwink is not here, so I kind of feel like we can have a lot of fun at his expense, Sarah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Taylor is still working. He just had a conflict come up, but I mean, absolutely we can. All right. So tell me your biggest complaint about Taylor that uh, <laughs> like, uh, go ahead. It's a free shot here. Like he can't do anything about the podcast before it publishes. Oh, I don't have any complaints about Taylor. I think my biggest complaint is that you two didn't meet up in Big Sky on your ski trips. Wow. That's you my biggest spun complaint. that around. You pivoted that back on me real quick. So I think we better get to the baseball. <laughs> Today, we're going to be talking uh, with Tim Kirkchin. We're also going to have a conversation about the living conditions for minor league players. Have a fun interview, an interesting interview about that. First, a labor update. Yep. Last week, the owners proposed using a federal mediator. The players rejected the idea. The owners' meetings are this week. No real progress. No end in sight. I'll be talking with Tim a little bit about this situation. Major League Baseball stopped testing players for steroids after 20 years of testing. Uh, this because the labor agreement with the players expired on December 1st, 2021. Uh, Tim and I are going to talk about that. Joe West is retired uh, as an umpire after a record 5,460 games. He, of course, broke the record set years ago by Bill Clem for most games umpired. And next question for Joe West is, when does he get the call from Cooperstown? Sarah, what else you got? So listen to Swagoo and Perk, an ESPN podcast led by its namesake hosts, Marcus Spears and Kendrick Perkins. With new episodes every Tuesday morning, Spears and Perkins will bring listeners the latest NBA and NFL news, as well as a look inside their lives, career journey, and can't-miss conversations. That's Swagoo and Perk. Listen wherever you get your podcasts and also available on ESPN's YouTube channel. Also, NBA Today, hosted by Malika Andrews, offers exclusive content Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific. Alongside Malika, there will be a full cast of NBA experts and insiders and many of our NBA reporters from around the league. Get caught up with the latest from around the NBA on NBA Today on ESPN and the ESPN app. One app, one tap, and also available on a podcast. Listen to NBA Today wherever you get your podcasts. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11 ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code BASEBALL. That's code BASEBALL. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. 
For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Seam heads rejoice. This is Timmy time. Baseball is the greatest game. With Tim Kirchner. It never disappoints you. On Baseball Tonight. Tim Kirchner covers baseball for ESPN. Tim, how are you doing this week? I'm well, Buster. How are you? I'm hanging in there. You know, <laughs> it's hard to believe that, you know, in, in a normal year, we would be in spring training a week from now. We would, you know, have our schedules. We know where we're going to be, which camps, sports center, you know, which hits we're going to do. And I have no idea, no feel for when they're going to resume. What about you? Yeah. And Buster, about this time every spring, I, I try to write down my entire six-week calendar for spring training. How am I going to see all 30 teams? How am I going to get to Arizona, Florida? Are there spring training games I need to do? And right now, I don't have anything written in my notebook other than I don't know what's happening now. I don't know what's going to happen next week. But logically, you know, we're a week away from spring training supposing, supposed to open. And obviously, we're not even close to an agreement. I think that we should, uh, you know, cut to the cha- cut to the end of the, the story for you on that. You're not going to see all 30 teams in spring <laughs> training. <laughs> what do you think? I mean, if we get an agreement, say, on March 1st, then that's, that's an optimistic view at this point. We get an agreement on March 1st. There's no way you can see all those teams. Well, it's it's impossible. I, I just feel this obligation that if you're going to cover the sport and then you're critical of a team and that team says, you don't even show up to see us this spring, how can you say what you're saying? This is a standard refrain from, from teams, which is obvious for all – uh, I I just need to see them all. And if I see three teams at this point, Buster, I'll be happy because right now, who knows how many are how many we're going to see and when we're going to see them. And because of that, I think what we need to do for the sake of our conversation, at least the first part of our conversation, is to suspend reality. Let's imagine a world in which there is going to be a settlement at some point. Uh, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, in early March, maybe late February, at some point, whenever this comes down, I'm going to throw some reporting at you that I've done over the last uh, couple weeks asking around about what do you expect whenever the gun goes off and the transactions start and getting feedback from folks around the sport and then they get your view on some of these topics. Uh, number one, Freddie Freeman. What I'm hearing is from a lot of teams, uh, from a lot of different folks around the sport is they think he's going to sign very quickly whenever uh, the transaction part of this resumes. And I'm telling you, there is a now growing skepticism that he's going to wind up going back to the Atlanta Braves. What do you think? Uh, I agree he's going to go quickly. I think he's going back to the Braves, but I was 100% sure of that when the process began, and now I'm well under 100% sure. 
I know at least initially it came down to a five-year deal or a six-year deal. Freddie, of course, wanted six years and the Braves weren't willing to go there. At least that was several months ago. I think several things have changed. Teams in trouble such as, well, the Yankees need a first baseman. So do a bunch. Dodgers could use a first baseman going home, all that stuff. So, Note my hesitation. I still think he's going back because I cannot believe the Braves would let him get away. But the longer anything lasts, the more likely it is he goes somewhere else. And like I said, I never thought this was going to happen. And now I think there's a decent chance that it will. And if he goes someplace else, let's face it, it can only be a short list of teams that would be able to sign him because there are not a lot of teams out there looking for a a first baseman in his early 30s at, you know, 28 to $30 million a year. There are just not that many teams in a position to do that deal. And the two teams that are absolutely top of the list, the Yankees and the Dodgers. And I, boy, I can't, and I get it that the, the Yankees have to, in the next year, they have Aaron Judge, you know, headed toward free agency. I'm skeptical that they actually will be the team that signs Freddie Freeman. You know, we'll see because that would mean potentially – You'd have four guys making $30 million a year plus between uh, Garrett Cole, Giancarlo Stanton, Aaron Judge with his next deal, um, Freddie Freeman. I just I, – I, I, I don't think they can necessarily fit him in to where their payroll is going to be. But, man, he would be perfect for what Aaron Bone needs in that lineup right now. Well, of, of course, Buster. I mean, left-handed hitter at, at Yankee Stadium, a guy that puts it in play as opposed to a lineup that a lot of times doesn't put it in play. Really good defensive player and with a World Series pedigree and one of the best guys you'll ever meet. He would be perfect for the Yankees. And if they're going to look at how are we going to get back to the World Series, how are we going to win for the first time since 2009, that Freddie Freeman is the guy that puts him over the top. I mean, I love Anthony Rizzo. I love some of the other things they've tried to do, but this is Freddie Freeman. This is not a, an acquisition at the trade deadline. This is a difference maker and they're gonna have to go over the luxury tax and everything else but if you're the Yankees sometimes you just have to do that I'm with you I don't know how they afford it but he is the perfect fit and he's the perfect fit for the Dodgers at the same time yeah and I think because of those payroll concerns that in the end we've made at this moment I feel like that the Dodgers are probably the best position of those two teams to make a run at them um, something else I've heard, the Oakland Athletics are said to be other t- by other teams to be absolutely ready to go. You know, we heard uh, the end of last season that they were ready to, to turn over their rosters. They've done many times before successfully, which means Matt Olson and Matt Chapman and, you know, some pitchers and all kinds of folks on that team could be on the move. The perception of other teams is once the bell rings and transactions can begin, they're going to be aggressive. I think it was Ken Rosenthaler first reported that, uh, the Athletics have had conversations with the Braves about Matt Olson, which would be the Braves moving on from Freddie Freeman. One way or the other, I think Oakland's going to be right in the center of a lot of what happens once the bell rings. Now, I would definitely agree with that. And, and let's be clear about Matt Olson here, Buster. That guy's great. He, last year, their guys told me he just got sick and tired of striking out too much, which everyone strikes out too much today. And he made an adjustment and still hit with tremendous power. He's one of the best defensive first baseman in the game. One of the great guys you'll meet and the perfect guy to build around. He's going to win an MVP someday. And I think if the A's are going to go and do and start the ball rolling, it's going to start with Matt Olson because other teams are going to want him so badly. And then following him, 
I have a hard time believing both Matts are going to get traded in the off uh, before the season starts, whenever that is. But Sean Manaya, another pitcher, uh, I have to think if if Matt Olson goes, a frontline starting pitcher goes, and they have a few of those. The elite reliever market is going to be the hottest corner of uh, what's going on in baseball with transactions. Uh, in other words, among the relievers who are unsigned free agents, you're going to see all kinds of actions, and the expectation in the industry is that's all going to be led by the Mets, uh, who need to fill out that bullpen after spending a lot of money on other parts of the team, and in particular, left-handed relievers. What do you think? Well, <clears throat> the Mets, with uh, with Buck Walter in charge, are going to leave no stone unturned about getting this team ready to win. This is Buck's – I'm sure this is Buck's last shot at winning a World Series, going to the World Series – and he needs help in the bullpen. It's not a terrible bullpen now, but there are so, as you said, so many relievers out there. And relief pitching is so important today that a deep, versatile bullpen doesn't guarantee anything, but it sure makes it a whole lot easier to win. And with everything that the Mets have done, and they've got ex- people really excited with the Braves potentially taking a step backwards and the Nationals, Marlins, Phillies, not not as good as we thought they would be at some point. This is the time for the Mets. The door is wide open. So I fully expect them to be active. Even though they've been active to up to this point, they're going to go get some, some bullpen help for sure. After Freddie Freeman, the biggest names that are going to be in the marketplace are Carlos Correa and Trevor Story. And Tim, I think a lot of what's going to happen with those guys is just going to come down to the medicals. You know, there's concern in the industry about Correa's back. Uh, you know, concerned that, uh, you know, despite the fact he's in his mid-20s, that he's had a lot of treatment on that. I think teams are going to want to know a lot about that. And that's going to shape any offers that he gets, um, which brings me back to the wondering if he's going to wind up back with Houston on a six-year deal with an opt-out after the second year, something like that. And the bottom line is, is Trevor Story needs to throw for teams. I think teams are going to say, yes, we love Trevor Story. We love his athleticism, but we're concerned about his throwing arm. We're concerned about the elbow, and we're, we're going to want to put eyes on him before we invest. What do you think? Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on both. I mean, both of these guys should be as premium a free agent as you can possibly get, given the position they play, the defense they bring, and their age and track record. They should be breaking records, but with the health of each one, each one's going to get paid really well before it's over. But you're right. They have to prove that they're 100% healthy. And if they somehow do, then Correa is going to get a ton and Story is going to get close to that. But you cannot sign a guy to a six-year deal without absolute certainty, best you can do, that he's going to be healthy for those six years. When I talked to you last week, we were not allowed to talk about the the 1 through 50 <laughs> of the ESPN Top 100 Players in Major League Baseball history because that hadn't been unveiled yet. Uh, so I'm bringing you back today to ask you about 1 through 50. Uh, what were some things that jumped out at you? Um, well, I've told you a million times that I think Derek Jeter is an underrated player not an overrated player, and people scream at me all the time about that. And I'm going to stick to that. But Jeter at 28, ahead of Johnny Bench and Albert Pujols, I'm sorry, you just can't go there. Those guys were better baseball players than Derek Jeter. And I think Derek Jeter is one of the three greatest shortstops of all time. I think he should be in the top 50. I just don't think he should be ahead of Albert Pujols and Johnny Bench. Um 
Pedro Martinez is the best pitcher that I have ever seen for a short period of a career. So peak value, Pedro's better than anyone I've ever seen. Better 99, 2000 than anyone I've ever seen. But for career value, you can't put him ahead of Greg Maddox, Roger Clemens, and Randy Johnson. You can't. Now, that still means Pedro's a top 20, a top 15, 10 pitcher, maybe of all time. But for career value, I think those guys have to be ahead of him. So Pedro at 11 was a little bit high for me, even though I just acknowledged again, he's the best pitcher I've ever seen. But career value matters to me, and I, I couldn't put him ahead of those other three on, on my list. It's so funny. I, you and I didn't talk before we did this, but uh, Jeter was right at the top of my list. Like I, and I, I'm with you. I have, uh, you know, through the years, because I covered Derek and people would say he was overrated. I'm like, you don't get it. Like the energy that he brings every day, the competitiveness he brings every day, there's real value in that. Okay, he's not the best defensive shortstop, but to have a player uh, be that good, that consistently, and what, only six players in history have more hits than he does, right? Um, or five players have more hits than he does. And to perform as well as he did in the postseason, you know, people say, well, it's because he had a lot of opportunities. Timmy had 200 hits in the postseason, and it's remarkable how close his postseason numbers are to his regular season numbers. But that all said, I agree with you. I thought that where we had him was too high, ahead of Sandy Koufax, uh, ahead of uh, Johnny Bench, ahead of Joe Morgan. Like, I feel like Joe Morgan, very underrated in our list. Yeah, we had a lot of underrated people. And I found the second baseman, I'm not sure we got the second baseman right. Roger Hornsby is the greatest second baseman of all time. I think he's the greatest right-handed hitter of all time. And we had him 20th. That was a little bit low for me. Now, again, look, I understand he played 100 years ago, so we're going to hold that against him. But his dominance back then, Morgan didn't get the same credit he deserved. I told you, Eddie Collins, Nap Lajouet, those guys didn't get enough. Uh, and even Robbie Elmar didn't get enough support at that position. It's a really hard position to play, but Joe Morgan should have been higher. I'm with you. He should have been ahead of Jeter, but to repeat, nobody loves Derek Jeter more than I do, but 28 was a little high. Yep, exactly. All right, let's touch on labor stuff a little bit. Um, you know, we, we talked some last week about this. I'd say this, the owners, I think the owners at this point have the financial flexibility to step up and for lack of a better word, be magnanimous, be willing to give up some of the incredible ground they gained in that 2016 deal. That was so much for the players. And what I'd say to the players, Tim, was you blew it in 2016. You didn't address tanking like you should have. Uh, and you're not going to get all that financial ground back. You know, some of what, uh, you know, I've heard about the players' perspective on this is somewhat like, yes, we need this, 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 and here's our laundry list. And you feel like, well, no, you're just not going to get all that ground back. And it's almost like when we were kids and we were playing a board game and we were like, we don't like the result. I want a do-over, you know, or, or uh, come on. That's, that's just not realistic to me. So I think the owners absolutely are in a position where they can move this thing along. They have a ton of value. I think they're incredibly cheap and not, not coming up with something that can get a deal done. And on the player side, I feel like that they still are angry about what happened in 2016 and they kind of get got to get over that. Yeah. As I've told you, Buster, a former player told me of 2016, um, we got a contract with Whole Foods and the owners got a salary cap. 
That's how he described the 2016 negotiation. Well, obviously the owners won that. And you're right, players being competitive want to get it all back. And that's simply not how it works in a negotiation. But in the end, the, the owners are the ones with all the money. They are the ones that have most of the power here. And I think it's going to be up to them to acknowledge, all right, we can't, we can't win 10 to nothing, two negotiations in a row. If we, if it's a six to four win, or if we tie five to five, that's good enough. We got to start to play again. Otherwise everybody loses. Yeah, no doubt about it. And I, I've been saying, I wish that the owners would go to the players and say, we agree with you. Tanking stinks. Service time manipulation stinks. Let's work on it together. I wish they had done that three years ago, but they didn't do it. And, you know, the players are not uh, as engaged in negotiations and it's a big old mess. Uh, and part of that is the fact, uh, or, or one of the results of that is, is that there's no steroid testing going on right now. Um, and, and I read uh, in the fall, I can't remember who wrote it, but somebody wrote a piece essentially saying that the player's perspective was, okay, once the labor deal's over, no more steroid testing. You know what? We don't, we don't need to do the steroid testing. And my initial thought was, would, did anybody learn anything from what happened in the 1990s? PED testing is something everybody should want, <laughs> except the guys who are cheating. You know, and so to have this window of time, I have no doubt Tim, that there are a bunch of players right now probably taking advantage of this time. Well, let's hope that they're not, Buster, but you're right. We have to learn from what happened, you know, 30 years ago because it opened the gates to something. And then all the players are so adamant about, you know, we can't have cheaters in our game. We have to have a, a playing field that is, you know, the right way. And, and without steroid testing, it could open up a lot of bad situations. So let's hope we get that settled and get this thing going. Yeah, I can tell you this, is that in that 60-game season that we had, the, the pandemic season in 2020, uh, because there were obviously other priorities, you know, trying to get everybody through COVID testing and COVID protocol and getting people with that, there was a window of time, and I can't remember that, I think, was it six weeks or two months in which there was no PED testing? And there was a lot of belief in the sport that there were players taking advantage of that. There were a handful of guys saying, you know what? They're not testing. I'm going to get juiced up. Uh, and that's why I wish that the two sides had been able to collaborate, cooperate enough where they can say, okay, we, we don't have a labor agreement, but let's figure out something where we can continue the steroid testing because that protects the clean players. That protects the interests of the clean players. That was one of the big lessons coming out of the 90s. Right. And again, that's what we've heard is so many clean players stepping forward and, you know, tearing into their own brethren who did this. And now there's a chance to keep everyone cleaner, certainly. And we're not taking advantage of that. All right, Tim. Always great talk with you. I can't believe we almost went 20 minutes and it feels like about two seconds. All right. Well, thank you, Buster. Good luck with everything. I'll see you soon. And hopefully I'll see you at spring training when I see all 30 teams. <laughs> Dogs are an important part of our lives and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NexGuard Plus chews provide one and done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease. Plus, it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored soft chew 
designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, the clutch hits, the strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems, with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, 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 with nothing on your roof. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Hatfielder Rhett Weissman was drafted in the third round of the 2015 draft by the Washington Nationals. He's played six years of pro ball after playing three years at Vanderbilt, which means that he's near and dear to my heart. He was a member of the 2014 College World Series winning team, becoming the first men's team to ever win a national championship at Vanderbilt. Rhett, thanks for joining us. Buster, thanks for having me. Uh, Harry Marino is the executive director for Advocates for Minor Leaguers. He's an attorney and former minor leaguer with the Arizona Diamondbacks and Baltimore Orioles. He worked as a litigation associate at Williams and Connolly and a law clerk to two federal judges before joining Advocates full-time. Harry, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to, to have you guys on to talk about uh, the ongoing effort to try to improve conditions for minor leaguers, living conditions. And Red, I, I'll never forget, I bumped into a you know, former Vanderbilt player after his first couple of years in the minor leagues. And I was like, hey, you know, how's your experience so far? And his response just shocked me. He goes, it's awful. He said, after, you know, the way that we went through college, he said, it's completely different. It's like you're just getting thrown into the deep end of the pool uh, between, you know, what you're eating, how you're going about your day-to-day life, preparation. He absolutely talked about how much different it was than what he expected. He thought it would be much more structured, that there'd be much more an effort to bring along, uh, you know, men in their young professional lives. And he said that just didn't happen. Now, I think generally speaking, my impression is that that's improved in professional baseball since I had that conversation, you know, 10, 12 years ago. But this is what you're working to improve. Right, right. Um, You know, Buster, we go from these, uh, you know, college guys, that is, from these crazy environments in college baseball, right? Uh, Playing in front of 30,000 in Omaha. And then all of a sudden you get drafted while you're there, right? Um, and then you go from 30,000 in Omaha, staying in five-star hotels, you know, eating five-star meals every night to being in the middle of nowhere with six people in the stands. You're staying in a day's in with cigarette burns on the beds, two guys to a room, um, you know, and, and you're getting peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. It's, it's quite a, it's quite a change. Um, now I also understand that you spoke to a Vandy guy, right? And, and I will say that at Vanderbilt, we're treated better than anybody, but I still don't think that it's acceptable. The level of, of, uh, um, 
you know, living style, uh, whether it's the wage, whether it's the food, whether it's the accommodations um, that are even currently present in minor league baseball, even though there has, like you said, been an upgrade to the, to that situation. A lot of what the focus uh, that, and I wanted to bring you guys on to talk about was in the housing. Harry, where do we stand with that? Yeah, so housing, as as you know, Buster, and certainly as Rhett and I have experienced, has been a huge issue for minor league players for decades. You know, the typical minor league housing situation uh, for a long time has been six guys in a two-bedroom apartment, uh, everyone on air mattresses. Um, and, you know, if guys wanted to live better than that, they'd have to pay, you know, more than their monthly paycheck to, to be able to do that. And over the course of the last year, that's something that, you know, the, the folks uh, that, we, that we've worked with at Advocates for Minor Leaguers and the players who have come together have really tried to bring attention to. Um, and I think it, it worked because uh, in, I believe it was November of this past year, Major League Baseball uh, updated its housing policy and said that they're going to provide free furnished housing to all minor league players beginning next season. Um, unfortunately, minor league players were not a part of the actual process of drafting that policy um, because minor league players don't have, you know, a union or a seat at the table. And so as it's starting to get rolled out here, we are seeing some, uh, you know, some loopholes in the form of, you know, continued use of host families. Um, you know, we've heard some rumblings that there, you know, there may be teams that put, you know, eight guys in, um, you know, in an apartment, uh, four bedrooms, but two baths. We just don't know exactly how it's going to play out is the reality at this point. So we're, we're hopeful that it will be better. Certainly it's going to be better than it's been in the past. Uh, but because of that lack of a seat at the table, uh, it's still very much kind of in the hands of major league baseball. And we're going to have to wait and, and see how it plays out. I think minor league guys understandably have a bit of skepticism based upon the history of how uh, players have been treated, but we're certainly hoping, hoping for the best. Right. I'm going to give you a seat at the table. Now, if uh, you were invited to, to speak, uh, you know, to an owner, to a general manager, head of baseball operations and give your experience as to what the state of uh, you know, lifestyle is for minor leaguers right now, what would you tell them? Right. I think that's a great question, Buster. And I think at this point, you know, the, the entire game from an owner's perspective is viewed in dollars, right? At the end of the day, it's a business. Um, if I was able to speak to an owner, it would be a very simple conversation. It would be, uh, you know, if your son was in minor league baseball, right? Um, how would you want your son treated? Um, and at the end of the day, right, it is a business. I understand that. Um, and the numbers are important, right? But at the end of the day, we're human beings. Um, there's a, a, the vast majority of minor league players are living under the poverty line, right? Um, you know, in, in 2021, poverty level was $13,000 for, for a single family household, okay? Um, the overwhelming majority of minor league players make well under 13,000 a year. So just kind of the all around living situation. And when I say that, I mean, housing, meals, per diem, um, pay. It's just not where it needs to be. Now, you know, it, it's trending upwards slightly and slowly, right? And 
as we started getting this group together, things are starting to improve, right? And, and I don't think that that is coincidence by any means. Um, but if I was able to speak to an owner, it'd be very simple. You know, what kind of conditions would you want your son to be playing in as they come up? Yeah, and I it would be interesting to see what kind of response you would get, you know, if you uh, and describe what you're going through. Um, Harry, you mentioned the loopholes. Tell me about sort of what the feedback's been since you guys began pushing back on that and calling note to that. Because I remember reading the statement for Major League Baseball last year and knowing how some of these organizations work. And I'm like, up, oh, you can slide in there. You can, <laughs> you can, you can get some coverage with that particular phrase. There's not anything necessarily guaranteed. What sort of feedback are you getting when you noted the loopholes? So. We're still waiting to see, right? A lot of the policies haven't been formally announced on the team level yet. And, uh, and so we're waiting to see what it's going to be. I can tell you that, you know, your reaction was very similar to mine, uh, Buster, in terms of reading some of that language and saying, you know, there's, there's some opportunities here to cut costs. What I would say is, you know, this is the opportunity for Major League Baseball and the teams to fix something once and for all, right? Just to do it the right way. I mean, I think that the fact that they've implemented a new policy shows that they know there's been a problem, that it doesn't make sense from a human standpoint, that it doesn't make sense from a player development standpoint to have players, uh, you know, facing housing insecurity. So they're going to operate in a different way in the 2022 season. Why not just do it the right way once and for all, right? Why not put every guy in their own room, uh, having their own bathroom, their own private space. These are adult guys. Some, a, a large percentage of guys uh, have wives and significant others and families and kids, right? I mean, this is a misconception of the minor leagues that it's just a bunch of, you know, kids running around or 18 year olds. You know, there are, uh, these are grown men who deserve their own space um, on the six month, basically work trip. That is a professional baseball season. And, if Major League Baseball has recognized the problem, it's time to fix it the right way. And that's giving every guy their own room, giving every guy their own bathroom. I mean, these are not, you know, crazy things that, uh, that we're asking for. Uh, and I do think some teams will do it the right way. And our hope is, um, you know, that that will be all, all 30 teams sooner rather than later. Right. I'm guessing, too, that if you ever did get that opportunity to speak to an owner, the part of the conversation could be like, this is a case where relative, you know, to what the the teams are worth in a $10 billion industry, $11 billion industry, that a little bit can go a long way. And so much of the focus in recent years, uh, the last uh, you know few labor agreements has been on a cost certainty for teams. Right. The draft slotting system, uh, reducing the number of rounds in the draft reducing the number of minor league teams. So they've been cutting costs in a lot of different ways. And this would be one way to perhaps use some of those savings to, to help your employees be in a better position to succeed. Right. I totally agree with that, Buster. And, and, and not only that, right? It's, it's about cost basis. It's about an investment, right? When you think about how much money the owners are spending on the initial investment of minor league players, right? These the organizations are bigger, right? There you you have more people coming in, um, especially with COVID rules. Bigger rosters, right? More players. Um, protect your investment. You know these these little costs will go a long way. Players being able to eat healthier outside of the uh, outside of the field. 
Um, players being able to get better night's sleeps. They don't have a roommate that's up all night, um, you know, playing, playing uh, on the TV and, and playing on the computer. Um, the reality is if there are better conditions for the players, the players will play better. It's, it's, it's simple, right? If you eat better, if you sleep better, um, if you're more comfortable, it's better. I, I can't tell you how many players I've played with over the past six, seven years who are so concerned, they, they go to bed stressed every single night because they're like, okay, well, if I don't have, you know, a good game tomorrow, I need to go get a job. You know, they're talking to their wife all night long wow. about how they're going to afford to buy diapers. I mean, you look at this, right? You're, you're talking about not only is it, are we, are we under the poverty level, but you're talking about an overwhelming majority of players being black or Hispanic, right? So we have a ton of minority players in minor league baseball, combined with poverty level situations, it's not a good breeding ground for success. Um, I, I think that our point of, of higher wages, better living conditions, I think that in the long run, it's just going to be more profitable for owners. And if they recognize that, I think that it'd be an easy decision um, to increase, uh, you know, the living conditions and, and the wages that, that, that we're looking for. I covered the Nashville Sounds in 1989 and 1990, and I was shocked at the way the players ate on the per diem at that time. Um, and I've heard where you literally have people living on McDonald's. I wanted to get from both of you sort of where you see, because that the Vanderbilt player that I bumped into, he just talks so much about that. Like, literally, the, as you said, Rhett, these are people that you're invested in. This is the future of your organization. And look how they're eating. It's crazy. So I'd be, love to hear, Harry, from you about sort of where, you know, first and then Rhett chime in about where the food is. Because that, that was shocking to me to hear those stories still pervasive, you know, 30 years later. Absolutely. No, I mean, the food situation is a real problem. And, and I'll just give you this perspective on it, Buster. You know, what back when I was with... Uh, the Aberdeen Ironbirds in 2013, there were a group of, uh, I had a car and a lot of players from the Dominican Republic and from Latin America don't have, you know, a car during the season. So there was a group of guys that I would pick up on the way to the field every day. And every single day, you know, we went to KFC every day that season to pick up food. The five of us would eat the KFC on the way because we didn't know when we got to the stadium, if the meal would be edible or not. Right. Wow. And that's, that's a true story. I mean, and, and it was, um, we knew, look, this isn't, this is cheap. We can afford it on, on the salary. It's chicken. It's not healthy. It's not good for professional athletes. Right. But it was on the way to the field and it was easy. Um, and, and that was what we, what we did every single day. And as I look back on that, I think if I'm, you know, the, the general manager or the president or the owner of the Baltimore Orioles, that's not what I want. There's no way that that's what I want. And one other thing I would say on the food is, you know, we, as Rhett mentioned, a large percentage of players are coming from outside the United States to play in the minor leagues, especially from Latin America, especially from the Dominican Republic, where uh, the diet is significantly different, right, in uh, where they come from, what they're used to. And so I was speaking with a player uh, just last week who told me that this entire season was his, was his first season guy from, from the DR. Um, and that he ate just bread, just bread, basically every day at the field, because the food that was served to him, he wasn't used to, and it didn't agree with his stomach. 
And there was no sort of consideration given for that, which is, which is kind of crazy when we're talking about, you know, 40% to 50% of the minor leagues. This isn't just one, you know, one guy. So those are just hopefully some perspectives that, um, that are, you know, useful to people who don't spend time in the clubhouse, right. And don't necessarily, you know, know that that's what's going on. Um, but I don't think it's uh, unfortunately anomalous. I do think that this is, um, this is pretty commonplace in the minor leagues, unfortunately. Red. Yeah. Well, you know, another thing that's important to consider also Buster is that it's, there's no baseline, right? So there's no baseline for what teams need to need to give players. Um, and there, you know, as far as nutritional baselines, um, there's no food guidelines that need to be followed. So for example, I was lucky, right? The Washington nationals did a very, very good job with food. Okay. Post game, they paid for every single meal. Uh, the food always had high nutritional value. And, and most importantly, there was enough, right? Um, and, and the reality to that is I would talk to my friends about the spread, right? Guys that are in different organizations. When I say spread, post-game spread, right? Post-game meal. Um, and they'd say, yeah, dude, we got hot dogs and uh, a couple stale burgers from the concession shop that they didn't sell. Um, I have friends with the Dodgers who say that they get, you know, four or five star meals after every game. And I have friends with other organizations that say sometimes we didn't even eat. They didn't even supply food. Right. So there's no baseline. Um, and every organization operates so differently when it comes to food in itself. Uh, the only thing that they share in common is the uh, the lack of per diem that players get per day to be able to eat outside of the field. Right. So if players can't afford because their per diem is, is, is too uh, short and their wage is too short, if they can't afford to eat outside the field, they're stuck with the food that they're provided with, right? If there's no baseline for the food that's provided, then it's really hard to, to keep your players fed and, and keep them eating at a high level. So we know what the owners could do. And I've always been curious about the relationship, guys, between uh, Major League Baseball Players Association and the minor leaguers. Because uh, there have been times where I, I, you know, from the outsider's perspective, for example, with the um, slotting rules, that essentially the interests of amateur players have been traded off uh, to benefit Major League players. And that, that's a choice that the union made. I'm curious from both of your perspectives, is there something that the Major League players could do to help minor league players in their living conditions. Brett? Well, you know, I would say that the overwhelming, overwhelming majority of major league players have minor leaguers backs, right? You know, if you look back to COVID, how, how do you not look at a guy like David Price, right? Who donates over $200,000 to, to the Dodgers organization, uh, just putting extra money in those guys' pockets. Um, during COVID, uh, the, the, the nationals were trying to cut the, the amount of money that we were receiving, right. Um, every single month or every week, actually it was weekly. Uh, and the, the major league players on the nationals headed up by Ryan Zimmerman said, that's ridiculous. We are going to create a fund out of our own pockets to make sure you guys get paid. Right. And then miraculously, all of a sudden ownership said, Oh, we'll pay. We'll pay. <laughs> right. So I would say they the, got embarrassed. They got embarrassed into a concession. The same thing happened right. with the Oakland Athletics, where I think the what they reduced the the minor league salaries from four hundred to three hundred dollars right. a week. Right. Come it was on. it was literally. I, I think that with the Nationals, it was like four hundred to three fifty, right? <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, if that doesn't prove that the major league guys have our backs, then I don't know what does. And and I think that that the the 
the correct perspective, right, from the outside looking in is that they do. They really, they do have our backs. Um, but, you know, they can only have our backs up to the extent at which, uh, you know, their union allows. Yeah, listen, I would agree. I would agree with Red on that. I think, you know, I would also say that, um, you know, major league players go through the minor leagues first, right, and then go through uh, years of team control at the major league level, right? So between the seven years of control in the minor leagues and six years of control in the major leagues, very, very small, that's 13 years of team control before players can get what they're actually worth on the open market, right? So it is very understandable, I think, to me and, and to others that what they're focused on is changing a system that is not fair for them right now. Right. And so, you know, what we're doing on our, our end is focusing on our, our issues. I think what they're doing is focusing on their issues, but I do uh, believe that what we're trying to do with advocates for minor leaguers and, and what we've seen from minor league players in terms of coming together around these issues right now is new and is opening a lot of eyes uh, among major league players and among a lot of different people. And I, I really look forward to continuing to see where this goes because I, I really hope that um, all players can, can work together uh, on behalf of each other at some point down the line, even though it hasn't happened you know, to this point. Uh, I'm optimistic about the future. Yeah, you guys have made progress and there's more progress that's uh, needed for players, that's for sure. All right, thanks for uh, joining us. Uh, it was great to talk to both of you. Thanks, thanks Buster. Yeah, it's great. Bleacher Tweets. All right, Buster, here is this week's Bleacher Tweets. First up from Mr. Jakey RS. The Giants are trying to sell many ticket plans. I find this infuriating considering the lockout. Am I being unfair? No, I've got friends who have season tickets and they're getting requests for money and uh, and they're basically saying that they're going to take their money out of it until they, there's a resolution. They're annoyed. You're not alone, Mr. Jakey. Up next, we have Kyle Benning. So baseball owners in 2020, we have biblical losses due to no ticket sales. We can't pay minor leaguers and need staff layoffs. Baseball owners in 2022, let's have a lockout in shortened season to squeeze the players. We can endure a loss of ticket sales revenue. Kyle getting some things off his chest. Yeah, what I'm really going to be curious about if this continues to drag on, if at some point the owners essentially go to the nuclear option where they decide through the mounting frustration over the negotiations in recent years, you know what, we're just going to sit in our bunker and we're going to wait until the other side potentially fragments. Uh, that would be absolutely disaster, but I think it's one of the options at play for the owners, and I'm curious to see how long they take it. And next up, we have Andrew Campbell. Let's forget this toxic mess for a sec. What's your favorite baseball moment in a non-baseball movie? I personally love Robin Williams' Carlton Fisk story from Goodwill Hunting and the World Series moment and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, a classic as well. So I've got a couple. I agree the Robin Williams' Carlton Fisk story from Goodwill Hunting was amazing, but I must say, like since that was produced by Harvey Weinstein, I, I did like it. Like it, there's a there's now a cold spot in my heart for that movie that wasn't there before. Uh, I actually have never seen One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Two that I was thinking about. One was awful. Uh, my best friend's wedding. Uh, Julia Roberts goes to the press box where sports writers are working. 
And based on you know that uh, the, the uh, I guess screenwriters' version of how sports writers are, they just sit and get drunk during the course of ball games. They don't actually work. <laughs> and it was like that person didn't have anything. The other one was Tom Cruise in A Few Good Men when he was walking around his apartment. He had an Atlanta Braves game against the San Diego Padres in the background. And I think it's Jerry Coleman, who is a friend of mine, whose voice was on that. I thought that was pretty cool. That So the A Few Good Men one uh, was good. But Sarah, as I was preparing mine, I was thinking, you may not have seen A Few Good Men, right? And you may I not have, have seen My Best Friend's Wedding. No, I have seen both of those. My family are big movie buffs. And my okay. dad... My dad raised me right. He sat me down and watched a few good men with me. And my best friend's wedding is a great classic movie. Love it. Um, the one that comes to mind for me <laughs> is Twilight. Um, listen, it's a cinematic masterpiece, that specific scene. The cinematography, the music, the form, the technique. <laughs> I almost can't even use that as my answer because it almost makes Twilight a baseball movie. It is that good. I've never seen Twilight. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> well, hopefully this will hit home for some people who were forced to watch Twilight against their will or who like it as a guilty pleasure. Taylor also sent me one as well. Um, it's not from a movie, but it's from the show Sex in the City. So the ladies go to a Yankees game and Carrie scoops up a newly called up minor leaguer and Samantha Jones hits us with this just all-time great line. And it's the only place I can smoke without Giuliani putting me away for 10 years. These seats suck. This hot dog sucks. My entire life sucks. Which I think <laughs> with all this labor stuff might sum up, you know, some baseball fans' feelings right now. <laughs> I think the next Bleacher tweet also, I think, will uh, also led me to that. Yes, a perfect transition to our last tweet from P.K. Steinberg. Dreamed last night that my wife and I were walking around London with Joey Votto. He was wearing a red wrestling singlet, naturally. Over the course of the day, he grew sad. Asked why, he responded, I just want to dance. Do you do dream analysis? Should we take a crack at this one? So I almost texted this morning, almost texted Joey Votto this morning and say, here's what here's what someone a fan was dreaming about. How would you translate this? But this seems absolutely clear. I just want to dance. He just wants to play baseball. That's what's going on here, Sarah. Isn't it easy? Yes. And I actually looked up a dream analysis website to type yeah. this in to see if this has any significance or deeper meaning. Um, so, and according to millersguild.com, dreaming about dancing can also be symbolic for a cry for freedom, trust issues in your inner circle, and a battle with anxiety. So, I don't know. I think it is all the labor stuff. It's yeah, all the baseball stuff. labor. It all comes back to baseball labor, trust, <laughs> trust, anxiety, for freedom to be out on a ball field. Your inner PK's life, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know who that might be targeted to, PK Steinberg or Joey Votto. Either one. <laughs> well, I might text uh, Joey uh, later today and just let him know that he came up in a in a very unusual way on our podcast. <laughs> All right, that's it for today. My thanks to Sarah. Nice job filling in today, Sarah. Thank you. It was super fun. And my thanks to Rhett Weissman, to Harry Marino, to Taylor Schwenk, and the great Tim Kirchin. 
Have a great day, everybody. Have a great week. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day. Thanks for listening to the Baseball Tonight podcast. If you're playing fantasy baseball, check out the Fantasy Focus podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. The Baseball Tonight podcast. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply.